Welcome to the Classic Anglican Podcast. Join us as we explore classic Anglicanism through thoughtful and informative conversation within the bounds of the Christian faith once received. I'm your host, Father Zachary. We wanted to have a show on the subject of fasting, and so we're very happy that Canon Kenneth Gillespie is with us to discuss this wonderful discipline from the standpoint of Scripture, tradition, and Reformed Catholic thought. The Reverend Canon Kenneth Gillespie is the Bishop's Chaplain for the Bishop Ordinary of the Jurisdiction of the Armed Forces and Chaplaincy. He currently serves as a chaplain in the United States Army. Canon Gillespie is also a founding member of the Order of St. Cuthbert, a religious order within the jurisdiction dedicated to keeping the daily office, fasting, and prayer. He and his wife Amy have two sons and currently make their home in Texas. Father Kenneth, welcome to the Classic Anglican Podcast. Well, thank you, Ken and Zachary. It's my pleasure to be here with you, and I just appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to discuss um, this really, uh, what I think is a very important topic. We're glad you're here, and today I'd like to start with Scripture uh, and simply have you walk us through the meaning, purpose, and effects of fasting in the New and the Old Testament. Yeah, uh, well, you know, the topic of fasting, it really appears throughout the canon of Holy Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, as well, you know, as in the Deuterocanonical books. Uh, we are told by the prophet Ezra, you know, that he called a fast, that they may afflict themselves before God in order to seek of him a right way. Right? We're told by the prophet Joel that God himself asked that the, you know, the people to turn to him uh, with all their hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and mourning. Uh, we're told in the 35th Psalm, Right, that the psalmist humbled his soul with fasting. And again, in the 69th Psalm, that the psalmist chastened his soul with fasting. Um, by the prophet Samuel, right, that King David besought God um, for the child of Uriah's wife by fasting and self-denial. And we are told that uh, Daniel right, sought God in prayer and with fasting. And of course, we have the powerful story um, of the people of Nineveh, who in response to the prophet Jonah um, sought to, to repent, right, to amend their ways, uh, to avoid the wrath of God by fasting, even requiring that the animals fasted, right? And Moses, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, receiving from the Lord what we know, you know, as the Ten Commandments. Um, of course, we see that echoed in, in Christ fast uh, for 40 days as he prepared uh, to begin his earthly ministry. Uh, you know, in the New Testament, we, of course, have that example of, of fasting for 40 days in the desert. Um, we also have um, the disciples, right, in the early church. We know that, that they fasted because it's one recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, and that Saul, who would become, of course, St. Paul, fasted during his three days uh, of being blind in Tarsus. Um, and so, you know, I think it's really evident that throughout Scripture, this was a, a very common normative practice uh, for both uh, the Jewish faith and in the early Christian church. Um, I think our best, most balanced view of fasting actually comes from the lessons prescribed uh, for Ash Wednesday, right? The beginning of our Lenten fast, because there, you know, you get, a, I, I argue, a balanced view because it checks us that we're fasting for the right reasons, right? It, it helps us to know that ultimately God prefers that we rend our hearts and not our garments, right? We, to not, as, you know, as the Lord himself, you know, tells us to, to not practice our righteousness, right, before other people in order to be seen by them. In doing so, 
well, we have our reward from them, uh, not from our Father who is in heaven. And so, you know, I, I think looking at Scripture in a way that brings about a deeper and more nuanced understanding of why we fast is important. Uh, because just seeing that it's evidence there, um, you know, that, that's one thing. But to actually try to, to, to truly seek to understand what is it that fasting does for us? Is this just a, a superstitious practice that helps bring us, um, you know, into God's good grace? Uh, or is it more than that? Is it something deeper than that? And I think, I, at least for me, our lessons on Ash Wednesday, you know, they help with that. They help to remind us that this is not about just, uh, you know, ritualism, right? Doing it because we're told to do it. Uh, it it's deeper. And I think one of the things that is very apparent as you bring up the Old Testament, intertestamental period, New Testament period, and a little bit of, of the early church, and we'll get to that here in just a moment, is that this is a practice, a discipline that spans the covenants and spans the testaments. And, um, you know, this is not something that is relegated. We're not a dispensationalist church, but it's not something that is relegated to a dispensation of time. Uh, this is not something that is like the uh, the oral law of the Old Testament or even the household rules of Israel that we can talk about at some other time about uh, Paul uh, Peter's vision and the making of clean uh, unclean things clean and so forth. Uh, but this is a discipline that transcends all of that is instituted by Christ, just as marriage is tr- is instituted by Christ. Uh, just as baptism is explained by Christ. This is uh, not really listed amongst uh, the sacraments, but is certainly sacramental in our in our sacramental life. And so this is a discipline within the church that you cannot argue against. You can only argue against motivation, which you got to when it says, rend your hearts, not your garments. And Jesus talks about that, obviously, when he says, when you fast, wash your face don't appear to have been fasting, right? What you do in secret, your heavenly Father will reward you for. But what you do before men, I tell you, those people have received their reward in full. And so that's what we're talking about here. We're also not talking about fasting um, in order to manipulate God, which is a a heretical view of this discipline. And this is about uh, simply humility, discipline, and being obedient to uh, the commands of Christ, and his church. And so that's really the foundation of where we start with this. What are some of the earliest practices of fasting in church tradition? Yeah, I would say the spiritual discipline of fasting, um, you know, again, we can see consistent evidence in Scripture and, and, you know, beyond the apostolic age into the early church uh, custom and practice. It's it's from this era, the first kind of first 500 years or so of the church that we begin to see various practices and prescriptions of fasting develop, um, you know, to include the discipline of fasting in conjunction with certain liturgical happenings in the life of the church. Um, Probably the earliest uh, of such writings is is the Didache, which prescribes a one or two day fast for those who are preparing to receive the sacrament of holy baptism. Uh, We have the epistle known as the the shepherd of, of Hermas, you know, outlining the method of fasting. So I have the epistle known as the the Shepherd of Hermes outlining a method of fasting, which called for abstinence from everything except water and bread, and then giving what would normally have been eaten as an offering to the poor. 
The early church fathers understood the value of fasting, as is seen in the writings of St. Clement in the first century, also referencing fasting as a means by which we might fortify the flesh. And most, you know, most beautifully articulated probably by St. Basil the Great, who tells us that fasting gives birth to the prophets, strengthens the powerful. Fasting makes lawgivers wise. Fasting is a good safeguard for the soul, a steadfast companion for the body, a weapon for the valiant, and a gymnasium for athletes. Fasting repels temptations, anoints unto piety, and is comrade of watchfulness and an artificer of chastities. It is war, sorry, in war it fights bravely. In peace it teaches stillness. I don't think we're going to get a, a better, you know, better quote than that. Um, that is outstanding. I mean, when was the last time you heard that in church, right? Exactly. That'll preach. Exactly. And uh, and one of the things I want to stop and just kind of focus on a minute because I think people hear fasting and they go, "Oh, I can't do that," and they and they just sort of tune out. And one yeah. of the things that you mentioned in there was uh, a method of fasting that was not complete abstinence. And indeed, mm-hmm. most fasting from the Christian tradition didn't involve complete abstinence of substance, but an, a modulation or a Absolutely. reduction of substance. Can you talk a little bit about some of those uh, practices uh, and what they look like and how they might look in the modern day uh, as we sort of translate foods and circumstance? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's always been a principle um, that guided the discipline of fasting uh, in the church, both East and West, that is, you know, basically fasting as you are able, Um, you know, the very old, the very young, those who are infirmed, um, you know, in kind of our our more modern context, the, you know, those whose whose doctors might, you know, tell you it's not a good idea for you, you know, that there's, there's a lot of different circumstances that might arise where, Complete abstinence is just not a recommended part of the discipline, but that doesn't mean that we can't still be more intentional and disciplined with the way we eat um, that brings about some of the very same benefits. You know, I think fasting, especially when we get away from the the superstitious element of it and and certainly the the heretical element that you pointed out earlier of doing doing this in order to somehow manipulate God. It's not about God as much as it is about us. Uh, St. Augustine you know, tells us fasting cleanses the soul and raises the mind. Right? It subjects one fle- one's flesh to the spirit. It, it renders the heart contrite and humble, and it scatters the clouds of concupiscence, quenches the fires of lust, and kindles the true light of chastity. Right? So that that's all about us, right? That's all about developing within us a, a greater awareness, mindfulness, and focus on God. Um, so you don't have to completely abstain in order to see some of those benefits. I would say, you know, from my own experience, if you are able to, there's tremendous value uh, in, in complete abstinence. Uh, but, you know, especially for those who have never fasted before, or if you do fall into one of those categories, you know, that I mentioned earlier, those who are infirmed, those who are, you know, who are older or very young, um, you know, don't feel as though you have to jump right into the deep end and go on a 40 day fast with, you know, with no food or water or anything that's probably not recommended. Um, start out, you know, by looking at ways you can be more intentional and more disciplined. That may be something very simple like fasting for, you know, 
just kind of the working hours of the day, um, you know, basically skipping breakfast and lunch and, and waiting, you know, and having a, a smaller dinner, something like that. It may be more simple meals, you know, a vegetarian or a vegan option uh, for a period of time. It, it might even be, um, you know, just cutting out any of the, the snacking and that sort of thing that we typically would do. Um, so we're going to have a small meal and not eat in between meals in order to, again, build up that discipline to say no to the flesh. And I think that's the value uh, that we find in it. And in towards the middle ages, there was a practice um, that I, that I think is one that we could adhere to today that I was really good. Fasting really became synonymous with not eating meat. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. it was, it didn't mean that if, if you had to go out and earn a wage for your family, you had to work in the field, you still consumed calories in order to affect that work. Yes. But you might for a season or a day of the week or two days of the week, typically Wednesday and Friday were fast yes. days, uh, you abstained from meat. So you would have porridge in the morning, but you would not put fats in it. You would not, uh, you know, benefit from the things that were savory and it would, it would focus you on the greater riches that God has in your kingdom. And so I'm really glad that we were able to talk about that because I think we immediately jumped to, I've got to go shadow box the devil in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights uh, and then end up with a main line in my arm in the emergency room because, you know, I wasn't smart about, (laughs) about, about that. And, and so we, also want to make sure that we're not laying these things out as if they are merit badges within the Boy Scouts. Exactly. Because someone has been given the gift of chastity doesn't mean that everyone has. Because the person has the ability to fast for multiple days does not mean that everyone's been given that gift. We should celebrate those things and benefit from those things. But if you run a 5K and I run a marathon, but we both enjoy running and we get benefit from it and it's a discipline and a healthy thing in our life uh, and we give God glory through it and we grow closer to God because of it, then okay, great. But uh, you know, if you're in the pool, you're in the pool. Deep in, shallow in, kiddie pool, doesn't matter. Uh, and that's really what we're, what we're talking about is, is being able to benefit from this spiritual discipline. But also in the Middle Ages like a lot of things, this became a point of awareness within the church of a time of reform. And yes. the church needed reform in this way as well. So um, we talk a little bit about what some of the fasting disciplines were then, uh, and the discipline, you know, how did it suffer abuse during this time? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of what we talked about already, the idea of it being tied to more superstitious um, understanding, you know, uh, an idea of, uh, of manipulating you know, God, I'm going to get God to do what I want God to do by, you know, doing something on my end. Um, you know, we see that human tendency surfacing in many ways you know, in the prosperity gospel at times as well, that concept of manipulating God. Um, you know, it often happens, I think, with disciplines and customs of the church. Um, you know, we can, we as human beings um, can can start to, to pervert the meaning uh, to suit our own needs. Um, you know, and I would say probably throughout m- much of Europe, it seems anyway from reading, um, you know, from kind of the Reformation era writings about fasting, that people had lost sight of the reason why the church is called to fast. And reading the reformers, especially, you know, from, from the continent, um, the Roman church's practice of fasting is often described as superstitious and even vain. Um, you know, there seemed to be a disconnect between the fasting 
uh, as, as a custom of the church and the edifying spiritual discipline, you know, that St. Basil described, you know, that we, that we listened to or, or whatnot earlier. Um, fasting, it seemed to be a common practice throughout the Western church, but the customs did vary. And the standard fast for, you know, Lent and Advent, those were, were pretty common. Um, you know, the, as you already mentioned, Wednesdays and Fridays uh, were certainly the most common. And they, but they were typically not periods of total abstinence, um, you know, deny, but instead denial of certain things. Uh, again, as you made mention of earlier, you know, usually meat was kind of a primary focus. Um, but it was often replaced by something like fish. Uh, and so, you know, common critics of fasting from the Reformation era writers uh, was that as soon as the sun set, those who had been fasting would sit down and consume enough to feed several, right? Or that, you know, someone might be fasting for meat, but they would seek out the most delicious fish, or they would fill themselves with beer and wine and sweet cakes, you know, all these other indulgent things. Uh, the idea was that it was observed in a legalistic way, right, with little true spiritual discipline or devotion connected with the practice. Um, you know, this idea that just following the letter of the law is somehow going to bring about God's favor, uh, you know, hence the accusation of it being a superstitious practice. And it was, you know, I would say common, uh, as it was with many things during the Reformation, the pendulum seemed to swing wildly <laughs> before it finally reached a more moderate settlement. And that Pendulum can go all the way to, hey, we're not fasting anymore, right? And there is a theological perspective that, no, the bridegroom is with us, yeah. and so we will not fast. That that ended at a certain period of time. Uh, but we certainly don't see that in church tradition and, or the teachings of the apostles or the apostolic men in, in that no, age. And so we must you know, consider that. I'll, I'll just throw one out there before we get to uh, the practice within Anglicanism itself. A more modern example for those who may think that this is some kind of weird, antiquated experience. Uh, on March 30th, 1863, uh, a resolution uh, asked President Lincoln to proclaim a national day of prayer and fasting. This was in the darkest days of the American Civil mm -hmm. War. The future of the Republic was in question. And the resolution was adopted on March uh on, on March of that year, uh, signed by uh, Lincoln in on the 30th of March, uh, and one month before uh, that day of fast was to be observed. And so you see how this was ingrained within the culture of the people of our country here in the United States, and certainly observed around the world as something that was considered important, not just prayer. And, and of course, now we have devolved in our secular society into, uh, you know, we just hope everyone's thoughts are with this, as if, you know, our thoughts are going to be, <laughs> I hope you're thinking about it. And I almost, you know, picture, you know, picture like uh, a lightning rays coming out of people's skulls as they think, think towards each other. It's your positive energy. That's right. But prayer and fasting asked on behalf of our country uh, and, and asking the president to proclaim that. And he did. Um, and this is actually something that we, he also encouraged, uh, during in a time and around the time that became our, uh, day of Thanksgiving as well. And so oddly enough, our day of feasting, uh, was more a day of fasting and prayer at one, one point, but there are 
days of feasting as well that are important. And so I'd like, before we go to uh, our Anglican practice, of which we have many feast days, let's talk about the importance of feasting uh, as to one side of the same coin uh, within fasting as far as spiritual discipline. Well, I think, you know, one of the one of the difficulties in at least the American church, um, as we consider this idea of feasting and really fasting for that matter, is that we live our lives, most Americans anyway, it seems, that we live our lives in kind of perpetual feast, right? There, there's always abundance. There's always, um, even to the point, you know, at times of, of gluttony. Um, we're just, we're always feeding our insatiable appetites, um, and, and our disordered affections. <laughs> and so when we consider well, what does it mean to feast, um, you know, in the, you know, as far as a church holy day is concerned, well, let's take the feast of the nativity of Christ, right? Christmas. Um, it's supposed to be a, a wonderful day of feasting in the church that many of us are, you know, preparing for. And, it's it's it, or well maybe by the time this actually gets uh, published uh, or whatnot um, you know maybe I'm just celebrated but it's it's this idea that you know we 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 miss out I think on the value of the feast when there when it's not preceded by a good fast when we consider what most Americans do as we're preparing for Christmas right we have an entire month if not longer of little mini feasts spread throughout. And all of the office Christmas parties, you know, parish Christmas parties, all of these things that are occurring during Advent, which traditionally was a time of, you know, preparation and fasting, uh, not to the same degree that, you know, that we might see during Lent, um, but certainly a time where we look at at ourselves and what motivates us. Even going back to, to what you said relative to, to um, the call for a national day of prayer and fasting in the midst of the darkness of the Civil War. Well, think about that a moment. You know, the Civil War was a self-inflicted wound, you know, in the American culture and society. It was our internal war. It wasn't an attack from an external threat. It was what we did to ourselves. And when we consider then the value of prayer and fasting as we look to maybe understand our own motivations better, what is our focus as we're making some of these decisions, what are we oriented to, you know, as our kind of guiding principle? Is it Christ? You know, does does a society that is rightly oriented to Christ as Lord end up in a place of civil war? Or perhaps might we have needed to engage in a bit of examination and self-reflection, to look within ourselves to see what is motivating us in the decisions that we're making? Um, you know, so if we think about the value of fasting, of what it does for us, um, you know, and its right use in the church, I think there's, you know, there's tremendous overlap there and kind of what do we do as a society and, and what are we doing to ourselves? Well, what are we doing to ourselves as a church? Um, and so when we think about many people's experience of Christmas, and I've heard this throughout the years, that it just kind of seems like Christmas Day is kind of anticlimactic almost, right? You have this this wonderful celebration in, in the morning where all the kids tear into their presents and, you know, all that kind of stuff and maybe a big, nice meal. And then the day after Christmas, it's like, well, okay, do we put it all up? What do we do with it? You know, you just, you've got the, the mess setting everywhere and, you know, people are just kind of done with it. I think the reason for that, at least if that's someone, you know, someone's experience, I think the reason is because we've been doing it for a month, right? We miss out on the season of Christmas tide because 
we've really celebrated during what should have been our time of preparation and fasting. Um, we don't see that as badly with Easter because for the most part within the church, Lent is far more, you know, I guess observed uh, than Advent in terms of, of at least a little bit of self-denial. Um, but, you know, when there's not a, a period of fasting and preparation, the feast loses its meaning. Um, and, and the feasts are there to help us mark our lives, to, to celebrate and truly, you know, tune ourselves into what God has done through the life of, of Christ um, and through the development of the church and, and to what we are called as the body of Christ to be doing in this world around us. I was listening to the Stand Firm podcast recently, and I can't remember which one of the guys it was that talked about it, but they said that they really would like to try to convince people to have a practice where they give everyone gift cards on Christmas Day, and then they spend the days of Christmas uh, going out and spending those those gift cards, right? Uh, so that the climax is is the Christmas tide as opposed mm -hmm. to uh, overindulgence throughout Advent and then this sort yeah. of um, you know, complete saturation yes. on Christmas Day. And, and this is a uniquely first world problem. This is a Absolutely. top 1% of the world problem that we're talking about, uh, if you even want to call it a, a, a problem. It is gluttony. And uh, mm -hmm. we would do well to investigate what did Advent look like? What did, did Christmas Day and Christmas Tide look like before commercialization, before secularization, uh, and, and before the, the sort of radical Western uh, individualism that, that has taken that over? Um, if you read the uh, Robin Hood trilogy uh, called Hood— uh, Tuck and Scarlet. Um, that that fictional book has a lot of Anglican practice in it from a pre-reformational standpoint of the church mm -hmm. in England, and you be, you have a very interesting view into the lives of feasting and fasting um, in in sort of a fun fictional way to be able to work through that. That's a Stephen Lawhead trilogy that that he wrote. Uh, and, and the feast was so rare and so wonderful and so overwhelming to people's senses that it was sort of like, I mean, it would be the equivalent of your first trip to Disney world, uh, in the minds of how people <laughs> experience going to, uh, the Bishop's palace. And, and, and by palace, this was just a better, a better stone and mud hut than anybody else's. But, um, uh, you know, it was, it, the expectations have gotten so big recently, that we really would do well to scale back, do a reassessment. And I really like what you you brought in about the Civil War. It's a self-inflicted wound. Our decadence is a self-inflicted wound, and our yes. expectations uh, that come from that are self-inflicted. And so we, we, we really would do well to, to focus on that. So in terms of Reformed Catholicism, or what we refer to as classic Anglicanism, how was fasting practiced in the Reformation, and what's the state of this discipline today? Yeah, well, you know, in the Reformation, is a kind of difficult to nail down uh, because, of course, there it looked different in different places and at different times. Uh, you know, from the continental perspective, at least in part, 
Uh, we have, you know, John Calvin and his Institutes of the Christian Faith, who speaks of the virtues of fasting right, and advocates for its right use uh, by the church. This is one of the areas that, that Calvin and I can, can agree. Um, there's not many, but this is one of them. In England— It's because uh, I'm still working on you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got some work to do there. Um, but in England, we have Thomas Beckin, who is the, the chaplain to, uh, to Archbishop you know, Thomas Cranmer, uh, who published a wonderful resource on, on the subject of fasting called A Treatise of Fasting. And he argues that you know, the virtues of fasting for the Christian soul um, you know, are, are tremendous. But he also carefully distinguishes a right and proper a Christian practice of fasting as a dis, as a spiritual discipline, right? He wants to make sure that that the readers of his treatise understood that the right use of fasting is different uh, from what he would con, you know call the the papist practice of superstitious custom, <laughs> separated from true devotion uh, and faith, right? Uh, so the laity must understand the why behind what they're doing. Um, he described fasting in this way, right? The true and Christian fast is freely and willingly um, done, right? It's, it's to freely and willingly abstain, not only from all kinds of meat and drinks, but also from those things wherein the flesh hath pleasure, right? And, you know, which abstinence of, or, or forbearing of meats, drinks, and other pleasures, um, you know, wherein the outward man delighteth, rises either of a, of a heart contrite and sorrowful right, for the sins committed against God, or else of a mind fervently given to godliness. That's the, the ends to which our fasting should be drawing us. Um, and we see this issue settled in the English Reformation in the second book of homilies uh, with the homily on good works and fasting. Um, which in reference to our Lord's response to the question of why his disciples were not observing the traditional fast, uh, he stated that the bride does not fast while the bridegroom is present, but there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken during which we, um, you know, the, the bride, we will be called to fast. And, you know, the this authorized homily of the English church makes it clear uh, that the time is now, right? It is meet and right to fast. Uh, stating, let us therefore, dearly beloved, seeing there are many more causes of fasting and mourning in these our days than hath been for many years here, you know, I think it's heretofore in any one age is the exact wording. Let us endeavor ourselves both inwardly in our hearts and also outwardly with our bodies diligently to exercise this godly exercise of fasting in such and sort of manner as the holy prophets, the apostles, and diverse other devout persons for their time use the same. Right? That's, again, an authorized homily of the church. So as we consider what it means to be a Reformed Catholic, I think that quote from the homily sums it up. Right, A godly exercise, right, that, as we've observed in the prophets, the apostles, and diverse other devout persons for use in their time. Now that it's, what, is, what does a practice bring you into congruence with? Is it bringing you into congruence with just something that we're doing locally right here and nowhere else? Is it bringing you into congruence with something that we're doing just in this our time? Or is it bringing you into congruence with what the church has always done, east and west and throughout the centuries? And that is the standard to which we're called. Um, you know, a little bit later, when the 1662 Book of Common Prayer was published, it included instructions regarding appropriate times of feasting, as we talked about earlier, and fasting, which remains consistent 
through the prayer book tradition to include our 2019 edition of the Book of Common Prayer. And so throughout the centuries, the church has waxed and waned in its disciplined practice of fasting. And in many modern expressions of the Anglican church, um, you know, what we might observe is, is fasting is simply a lost tradition, um, you know, of the church of years past. But fortunately, at least from my point of view, it seems that you know, there's some renewed interest in fasting and reclaiming that which has been lost, um, Again, in just my opinion here, but that should be celebrated and encouraged, especially in American culture where we seem to live in this perpetual season of feasting. Uh, We need the discipline of fasting. We need the intentional opportunity to call our minds to awareness of our own sinfulness and negligence and to deny ourselves this readily available indulgent luxuries that are are all around us. Um, And in doing so, making the times of feasting so much sweeter. We may be the first society in the history of the world that has gotten fatter during a time of plague. <laughs> I mean, people talk about their COVID pounds that they've put on. Yes. And, you know, you think about the plague uh, that that at multiple various times throughout the Middle Ages, ages ravaged Europe, 40% of the population wiped out. Um, yeah. And people praying and fasting that this would we would be delivered. And indeed, when you read the uh, prayer for deliverance of the plague from the mm-hmm. 1662 Book of Common Prayer, um, you know, it, it puts very squarely the onus on us to repent and to turn towards God and to pray that his destroying angel uh, would would be taken away from from this this period in this time. Yet here we are, a nation fatter than we were uh, two years before, uh, and I think that that speaks speaks volumes uh, with that. So this is uh, um, very telling. This is something that goes to the very root of who we are as a people. It is a barometer of how we view the state of Christ's church and the effect of Christ's church on our neighbor. Um, you are are the chaplain to our bishop ordinary. And our Bishop Ordinary, Bishop Derek, is uh, a regular practitioner of fasting and advocate of yes. the practice. Can you share just some pearls of wisdom that he, you have picked up from him uh, over, over the time of working with Bishop Derek and, and being his chaplain in regards to this discipline? Yeah, absolutely. So he has a, a you know a wonderful presentation um, that he has shared with uh, the chaplains of the you know the jurisdiction um, you know a couple of times now. And one of the things that he talks about that, that I very much appreciate and am glad that he really hits home um, so strongly is again what we've mentioned already here. But this idea that this is not a superstitious you know practice. It's not a ritual designed to manipulate God. Uh, it's about us, and he really focuses in on the the benefit of fasting as it relates to our ability to hear from God, right? To to perceive what God is trying to communicate to us. It kind of gets our, you know, our, ourselves out of the way, if you will. It creates a, a context and opportunity for us to be more sensitive and receptive to what God may be speaking to us. Um, 
you know, as far as the, you know, the, the recommendations that he has uh, for fasting for those who are able. And again, that is always the, you know, kind of always the caveat or the preface uh, as we introduce this concept of fasting fast as you are able. Um, but, you know, for him, it's, it's really seeking to, to abstain fully um, you know, from all food, water certainly is allowable, but from all food, um, and really seek to, to build up that discipline so that you're able to do so for, for multiple days, um, three, four more days. Um, and in doing so to, to really look at how that impacts your ability to be sensitive and folk, you know, to what God, the Holy spirit may be speaking to you and to be focused, um, you know, on what God is, is really doing in your life and, and calling you to do. So as, as we wrap up, there's a wonderful, um, series of teachings about going from couch potato to 5k. Yes. And could you give us a little bit of an outline of what it might be to go from someone who is intimidated by fasting uh, to being able to sort of do the equivalent of that first step of of mm-hmm. getting out and doing a little bit of jogging so that you might one day be able to finish a 5K. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's certainly no need to reinvent the wheel, right? As I hope I've, I've made clear, the Anglican tradition is well acquainted with the discipline of fasting, and it gives us a right and proper framework uh, that we can establish, you know, both a corporate practice of fasting as a parish community, uh, but also as an individual discipline. Uh, you know, in our 2019 Book of Common Prayer, it states that uh, Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, um, you know, also Good Friday and, and days of our Lord's crucifixion, uh, they're typically, you know, those are traditionally the days of special devotion and total abstinence. So if you're going to you're going to pick days that you're like, I'm just, I'm not going to eat at all, right? Total and complete abstinence. Then Ash Wednesday and Good Friday would be appropriate days for that. That brings you into, um, you know, into congruence with what the church is doing. Uh, the weekdays of Lent and every Friday of the year outside of the 12 days of Christmas, the 50 days of Eastertide, those are also encouraged days of fasting. Um, other days from our prayer book, uh, we see ember days, rogation days. They also may be kept in this way. Um, you know, fasting in addition to just reduced consumption normally also includes prayer, self-examination, and acts of mercy. That's straight from the prayer book. Uh, so as we look to, as you said, kind of going from couch potato to 5K, start small. Um, you know, start by looking at what is the church asking me to do? What does my own book of common prayer recommend? Um, you know, and I would say based on these instructions, we are only really called by the church to the, you know, the discipline of total fasting on those two days per year, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Um, you know, again, as I mentioned, if you're very young or old or you're dealing with any health conditions, then a modification of this would be appropriate, right? You can choose to abstain from all food or drink for a shorter period of time. Um, you know, the idea is to practice discipline and intentionality, to approach fasting as an act of devotion and faith, not simply as a, as a custom or as a vain ritual. Um, you know, the other days of the year where fasting is identified as appropriate, again, those weekdays during Lent, as well as, um, the, you know, we can, we can look at every Friday of the, of the year where one might practice reduced consumption. That's really the, the focus here, reducing what it is you're bringing into your body. Um, total abstinence always remains an option. It, but it's not expected or required. 
One might choose to refrain from eating meat, as you mentioned earlier, from maybe, you know, eliminating things like dairy, sweets, or alcohol uh, during these times of fasting. Maybe just to eat smaller and more simple meals. And most importantly, to devote oneself to prayer and in acts of charity, as the prayer book encourages. Um, You know, I would also encourage... Uh, the you know practicing this this um, you know idea of reduced consumption during the season of Advent, as I mentioned earlier, um, that that is the traditional you know kind of, of way of approaching Advent. Uh, although our prayer book doesn't specify Advent, um, you know, as a as a you know a time of corporate fasting, that certainly was common uh, throughout church history. In American culture, you know. We, we're too indulgent with the things leading up to Christmas, you know, the gluttony that we spoke about. And it might just help us to actually get at, um, you know, at the real value that we experience through feasting. Um, you know, I would also like to just kind of revisit this idea of what, um, you know, Father, um, Father Beacon's treatise on fasting that I mentioned earlier what he what he says because I think it's an ex, he does an excellent job of outlining some guidelines or guiding principles to fasting. He tells us that the right purpose of fasting is to subdue the flesh and to develop self control. It is an opportunity for charity. It is a time of prayer and reflection and a time to hear and rightly receive God's word, as our own bishop um, likes to focus on. He reiterates what our Lord teaches that we are not to draw unnecessary attention to ourselves, but to fast privately, right? We, this is not something that you, you want to, you know, necessarily put out on your Facebook, you know, feed or, or your Twitter feed. Um, it's not about drawing attention to our own self-denial or piety, uh, but instead we are called to anoint our heads and wash our faces and to be presentable, right? And in doing so, you know, I pray that our experience of fasting is congruent with what, you know, St. Augustine describes one which fasting cleanses our souls, right? raises our minds, subjects our flesh to the spirit, you know, renders the heart contrite and humble, scatters the clouds of concupiscence, quenches the fires of lust, and kindles right, true light of chastity in our lives. Canon Kenneth Gillespie, thank you so much for sharing with us and joining us on the Classic Anglican Podcast. We really enjoyed having you. Yeah, well, you know, Ken and Zach, it was great to be with you today. I hope this conversation can be, you know, helpful um, for those who are, who are seeking to faithfully follow Christ. Right? Fasting is a it's a wonderful and important discipline, and I hope that this can help more people to discover, you know, the virtue uh, and the value, um, you know, with this discipline. You've been listening to the Classic Anglican Podcast. We look forward to being with you during our next episode. To learn more, join us online at www.anglicanchaplains-etf.org. Until then, stay strong in the Christian faith once received, and keep Anglicanism classic.